0: Well, I have spoken of my legendary high school career a number of times. I'd like to reference my greatest class of high school. I ended with an 87 average. Pretty legendary. Tenth grade biology. Um, And uh, there's more to that story. Uh, In New York State, uh, at least when I was many moons ago in, in education there, Uh, they they divided our marking periods into six six six-week sections and um, so the first session I failed I mean they don't take final grades then but I would have failed if that would have been my grade Uh, we had a student teacher for the first marking period he was interning and he was horrible I, I don't mean him any harm but he just just out and he taught Material. Now the material he taught was fine. Uh, it was just he looked completely unexcited, uh, and it just kind of taught the material, and that's all he did. Uh, from that point on, I had to bring that up to an 87 average. Why I'm impressed with that. Um, I got there was one marking period I got uh, like straight 100s uh, on every quiz, every grade, everything. Uh, it was and it took a long time to pull that average up, uh, but I did so. Uh, because I had a teacher that looked like he was excited about it. Uh, that, that he was interested. It was the same material. They were teaching the same material. Uh, and one teacher was able to bring it out in a way that, uh, that made me interested in it. Uh, I say that because we're going through some difficult material uh, in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter of 11 is not the greatest prophecy of Daniel. In my estimation, that's Daniel 9. That's, that's the, the prediction of Christ's coming and, and being a Messiah. That is his most important prophecy. However, Daniel 11 is the most detailed and it is the most impressive in terms of accuracy, Daniel chapter 11, uh, if you're wondering why all of the criticism, we've referenced this in every chapter, but Daniel chapter 11 is the reason why the criticism, because people just can't imagine that, that 200 years, uh, beginning with 200 years, up to 400 years before these events take place, someone could have predicted them with the, the accuracy that Daniel does, which is really circular reasoning. I mentioned my story because I know that a lot of you probably don't like history uh, and don't like details. For those of you who do, this will be very interesting. Uh, But if you don't, I hope that my excitement at least uh, will hold you over till we get to the application. Um, And these things are applicable, though they are things and events which happened thousands of years ago. Uh, they are very applicable. So we are going to get into just the first part that is so detailed, we are going to have to take this chapter in possibly three parts. Uh, that is how intense this material is. And, and for, the, for probably the majority of this, we are just going to be looking at dates and, and, and unfortunately things that we have to do as a part of history, right? Uh, so let's begin. Chapter 11 of Daniel, verse 1, he says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I, yes, I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength through his riches he will stir up against the realm of Greece. And then a mighty king shall arise who will rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, not among his posterity or according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. And the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they will join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north and make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her and with those with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. And from a branch of her roots one shall arise in his place who shall come... With an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. And he shall carry the goods captive to Egypt with princes and with precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom uh, of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. And however, his sons shall rise up. Uh, And stir strife and assemble a multitude of great forces And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through Then he will return to his own fortress and stir up strife The king of the south shall be moved with rage And go out and fight with him And the king of the north shall muster a great multitude And the multitude shall be given into the hand of the enemy And when he has taken away the multitude His heart will be lifted up And he will cast down tens of thousands But he will not prevail For the king of the north will return "...and gather a multitude greater than the first, and who will come with an end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many will rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south will not withstand him. Even his choice troops will have no strength to resist, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will." And no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. We're going to go through this. Uh, We remember that chapter 11 is an extension of chapter 10. And so chapter 10 began with this angel, uh, possibly Gabriel. Uh, It's not specified there. Uh, That This vision begins in Cyrus, in in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now this begins, chapter 11 begins with this angel reminding him that, that even though there was this bad angel uh, that was kind of governing Persia, he was working kind of underneath this to strengthen one king, this Darius the Mede, because this will eventually lead to Cyrus gaining power. And that's who God wants in there, because this it involves all of these commands, those four commands that we talked about to go and rebuild uh, the temple, the, uh, the, the foundations, the cities, and then the wall. And, uh, and we're going to see kind of in and around here so some of the things that are, are pertinent uh, to, to that. And so we begin here. This first section of, of verse uh, 2 through 4 is, is kind of a broad, uh, a broad discussion of the end of the Persian Empire. It, it, as we go, it's going to be kind of smaller and smaller time periods, but this is really broad. So he says, three more kings are going to arise following Cyrus. We know them. History records what their names are. Uh, They are Cambyses. They are a guy by the name of Gaumata. And then Darius I called Darius the Great. Uh, Darius the Great was the guy who renewed his uh, cousin, something or other, sixth cousin or whatever, Cyrus or third cousin, his order to rebuild the temple. But then he says, then there's going to be a fourth one. The fourth one is going to be richer than all of these. He's going to be much greater. We know him uh, by his Greek name, possibly, as Xerxes I or Xerxes the Great. Um, We here know him better as Ahasuerus, the husband of Esther. Uh, he was richer this guy was richer he was, in, he was incredible he extended the Persian Empire now, when we talk about Persia we're talking largely about Iran And it, it, at the time Iran was a little bit east of what we know as Iran and maybe north into Afghanistan a little bit west but he expands it and he takes all the way into India not the whole nation of India that's, that's pretty big and he goes as far south as Ethiopia, including Ethiopia. That's halfway down the African continent. So he really is greater. And it says that he will arise against Greece. And he did. Ahasuerus I got a little full of himself. Uh, and he goes in 480. He gathered an army of one million people. That's a large army. And he marches to Greece. He has a victory there. Um, However, it will not last. He will be defeated at a battle we all know well. Uh, We run races, except for this year, of course, in honor of Ahasuerus, the husband of Esther's defeat. We run marathons. And we know the story of marathons, the man running from 26 miles from Marathon to Athens to Warn Athens. right And that... Force that came out an inferior force defeated Esther's husband in war and so then he says then a great king will arise now he's not talking about during Ahasuerus time he's actually skipping forward here about 150 years later and we know if we read this pretty even briefly who he's talking about he says a, a, a king will arise he'll do what he wants but his kingdom will be broken up into four winds or four directions. Well, we know this is Alexander the Great, right? We've already talked about this numerous times. We've talked about how Daniel cycles through. And every time he cycles through something, he gets more and more specific. And this time he's going to get very, very specific in terms of what's happening between Persia and Greece. We talked about that, that ram of Persia. was a great, great, mighty army. It was impressive and how a goat... Now, a goat's not so much a ram. Uh, it's, it's not nearly so Im- impressive as you know, what we would call a, a bighorn sheep or something. I mean, those are massive. But this goat comes over and decides, hey, I'm going to defeat you. And that's what Alexander the Great did. But it says he will, his, his kingdom will be broken up into the four winds. We talked about his four generals. It will not be according to his posterity. When Alexander the Great died, his wife was pregnant. Uh, she gave birth shortly after his, uh, after his death, and uh, the mother and son were assassinated. In turn, uh, I don't know if it was by the same person, there's a lot of sketchy details, but the mother, uh, Alexander the Great's mother, assassinated Alexander the Great's brother and wife. And in turn, she was then executed. There was nobody left of Alexander's line. So, so he says it will not be according to his posterity. There's no relatives. There's nobody connected to Alexander the Great. It's not according to his dominion. Uh, the, the ruling line of, of, of the, the Macedonians is over. Now there will be a kingdom of Macedonia, but it will be under the generals. They will divide it up and it will be according to uh, their lineage we're going to largely be looking at two nations. We've talked extensively and we've read the king of the south and the king of the north. We're going to be looking at the king of the south, which is Egypt. He says the king of the south shall become strong. We know these as the Ptolemies. These will go all the way down up into Cleopatra. So some names that we're familiar with. Uh, This king of the south is, by the way, his name is Ptolemy I Soter. In the south, we're just going to be talking about Ptolemies. They'll be easy to keep straight. Unfortunately, the king of the north, we're talking about the Syrian part of the Greek Empire. And these guys go by two names. They're either called Seleucus, or they would have a brother, and they would be named Antiochus. That name sounds familiar, right? Uh, Antiochus would be because their capital became Antioch we know Antioch that was where the disciples were first called Christians trying to keep a, a few things biblically relevant for us to understand that these things are all connected we're largely going to be looking at these two empires or parts of the empire because the other ones aren't relevant to us Palestine Jerusalem these visions are for God's people and they're going to be situated directly between these two wars or between these two nations that are at war between Syria and Egypt and God's people are right in the middle. So he's giving them some things to be ready for. Well, his empire was parceled out to these two people, uh, or these four people, and, and these two take primacy. So in the north, we'll be either be talking about a guy named Seleucus, something or other, or Antiochus, something or other. Right? Those are, we can keep these straight. Well, he says, uh, uh, so the king of the south will become strong as well as one of his other princes. Now, in the last chapter, we were talking when we, we referenced prince as an angel, right? Because we know that because the prince was the prince of, uh, this prince came and was fighting with this angel. So we, we recognize that the prince was a reference to an angel. However, here he's referencing a prince of Alexander. So we know he's not talking about an angel. He's talking about uh, one of the generals. And just want to get that. Uh, just kind of tidy that up a little bit. He says, now, so let's go through. Uh, we're going to be talking primarily uh, about these two empires. So we begin with Seleucus, a guy by the name of Nicator in the north, and a guy by the name of uh, Ptolemy I. Now he says, in time. So now we pass some time along. We're now to their successors. He says, they're going to make an alliance. Um, and it's going to involve one of their daughters. And you can see already how detailed. We've only gone through some, some few details and how accurate the Bible is when it predicts these things. But now we're going to get really interesting. So Ptolemy II is reigning now at this time. And it says uh, one of their daughters is going to go uh, and, and th- there's going to be a treaty based on this daughter. Well, this daughter is Ptolemy II's daughter named Berenice. He says, but she won't retain her power. So, what Ptolemy II did is he marries uh, the, his daughter off um, to uh, Antiochus, This first, or I, I, their numbers kind of get, uh, get confusing. So, if you're confused, good, we're together. Uh, so, Antiochus sends his, uh, and I believe his name was Callinicus, but I'm not quite sure on that. Uh, he sends his wife away. He has to divorce his current wife. Her name is Laodicea. We've heard of that in a, uh, a city named Laodicea. Right? Uh, so this is Laodicea. And uh, there were lots of Laodices, by the way. That's just kind of names were popular. And uh, so he sends his, divorces his wife, Laodicea, and, and sends her away with her infant son. But the Bible says this Berenice is not going to retain her power. And in a few years later... Uh, Berenice got some support. She came back. She assassinated Antiochus, Berenice, and the infant son. She is now acting regent for this new, what was the rightful heir to the throne. So she doesn't retain her power. And much like the passage says, neither will he, the king. He's dead. Uh, Now goes "A, a branch of one of her roots is going to stand up. We're talking about from the south. She's from the south. So, so a branch, some, some descendant is going to, to rise up. That's in verse 7. Well, that happened. During this period of time, her father has passed away normally, not been assassinated or anything like that. And so Ptolemy III, her brother, is. Uh, his name is Euregides, which means benefactor. Uh, He's in charge now, and he's pretty mad. His sister's been assassinated. So in revenge, she storms all the way up to Antioch, enters the palace. He doesn't kill Laodice. She escapes. So he decides to go for some consolation prize. He actually takes captives, people, in the palace. He was in the palace the Bible says he'll take the silver and gold too and some idols, and he did. He took 2,500 idols. It's a lot of statues to carry back home. But he didn't just stop there. He took back 440,000 pounds of gold. There's a big army to carry that. Um, But he also takes about four and a half million pounds of silver. He was pretty ticked off. So it says also that he will continue more years than the king of the north. Well, that, Why would that be impressive? God is predicting that the king of the south is going to continue. Remember that this young son wasn't even able to be king at first. Now both of these kings have taken power coincidentally enough in the same year, 246 BC. But the first one in the south his father died of natural causes so when he takes the throne he's already 35 years old the younger son assumes his throne as an 18 year old man the same year yet the king of the south will live 5 years longer uh, uh, this is Colinicus so uh, this, the son is Clinicus, not the father uh, he's going to fall off his horse and die but we're not quite there yet Verse 9 is a little bit difficult. Uh, If you look at that, it says the king of the north. There are two translations, and they're almost exactly opposite. Uh, One might reference the king of the north coming to the kingdom of the south. If yours says that, you will notice that it's in italics, uh, because there's a reason for that. We'll get to it. One of yours might place the king of the south as the subject. This is difficult grammar, so we're going to get into just a touch of grammar. I promise it won't be long. The reason that the king of the south is italicized is because it's not in the original. It's not there. It's been added by some to try to make this verse make sense. The reason is because in Hebrew grammar, we know that uh, we can look at words. Uh, Not we, because I don't know anything about Hebrew grammar. Uh, But people who know how to speak Hebrew can look at words, and they mean things. Uh, The endings of a word tell you what it does in the sentence. So if it's a subject it has a particular ending. This verse has no subject. It simply doesn't have one. It has no word that operates as a subject. So, so some people have turned the, the phrase king of the south, which does appear in the Bible, but it's in the wrong tense to be a subject. They've turned that into the subject. So if yours says the king of the south will, will come to his own land and then return home, they've made a mistake too. Both, both sides kind of have this problem. Well, if we read the whole text, of beginning in verse 9, it's obvious that the, the king of the north must be the subject because he's coming to the king of the south and he's doing something. And the king of the south didn't come to himself and then come into his own land and then come home. It, it's kind of confusing. But the, the king of the north is the one coming to the kingdom of the south. and We're going to see that, uh, especially as it talks about his sons. So, Callinicus, uh, he does come to the south. He's pretty mad too. He's just had thousands and thousands and millions of pounds of stuff stolen. He's mad. So, he comes to the south. But it says he returns home. While he was south, going south, his brother, um, Antiochus Hyrex, decided he was just kind of a, a ruler over a small area. He decided that he would take the throne for himself. So, uh, Callinicus is just getting down to Egypt when he has to suddenly make tracks and come home to put down this rebellion and he will never return because it's in this process that he falls off his horse and dies. Now we're done with Callinicus. But we're not done with his sons because it says his sons are going to assemble this great army and they're going to to, uh, send wave after wave after wave Well, there are two sons. The first one is Seleucus Seranus. He began assembling a large army, and he did. But he dies two years into his reign because he had a problem paying them. He didn't want to pay his army. Just a word to the wise. If you're going to start a rebellion, make sure you pay the people with guns. That's all I'm saying. So his brother, Antiochus III, who will be called Antiochus the Great, will carry out these military campaigns. And he starts to immediately. He has three military campaigns, all which end disastrously. Not a great start for a guy who's going to be called the Great. Uh, The third of these is referenced in verse 11 when the king of the south will be moved with rage and go out and fight with him and the king of the north will muster a great multitude but the multitude will be given into the hand of the enemy. And when he has taken away the multitude his heart will be lifted up. That's talking about the, the king of the south. And he will cast down tens of thousands but he will not prevail. Well you can cast out tens of thousands kill ten thousand people or more and not win. And that's what happens. This happened at a, a, a battle called the the Battle of Raphia. Uh, Ptolemy, this is now Ptolemy the a guy by the name of Philopater. And he goes north and attacks Antiochus III. Raphia, by the way, is a city in, uh, we know it, uh, it's, in, uh, it's called Rapha even to this day, it's in the Gaza Strip. See, it's interesting, we're getting a lot closer to Jerusalem, aren't we? It's getting a lot relevant for these people. And he, this is an interesting war because they used elephants in war. There was like their their panzer division, their tank divisions. And they would fight each other with these elephants. But um, the problem was that Ptolemy's elephants were a a different, they've gone back and looked at the breed, and his was better. They were bigger. And uh, so he completely destroys Antiochus III. What to do? Well his heart was lifted up He couldn't lose And it says that many are going to rise At this point against the kingdom of the south Well Ptolemy IV and his wife Were assassinated We don't know by who But it's very interesting that their infant son Was not assassinated That's typically how you do things You get rid of whoever's there Uh, Coincidentally enough this, uh, This young infant son had a general Who was his regent And so a lot of people think that the general might have done the assassinating so that he could be the regent and do what he wanted with the empire. And so there's a a thing happening within the empire. At the same time, Antiochus III has been plotting with Macedonia. He doesn't have all the power himself, so he's been plotting with, with Macedonia. To try to to take care of this uh, this whole situation, and they 're going to divide up at some point in time they 're going to attack and they 're going to divide up Egypt in which he will take Egypt itself and also the island of Cyprus and Macedonia will get whatever they get they 're not important well <clears throat> after his assassination, he sees his opportunity now leading up to this. Event where, the, where Ptolemy IV was assassinated. Um, some other things happened. Antiochus III went on a little bit of a winning streak. I'll put these in, in our modern day geography so that you can see what kind of winning streak he went on. He marches to Iran and takes Iran. That's a big country. He then goes north and takes Afghanistan, another big country. He goes east and he takes part of india then he turns around and he goes and takes saudi arabia you know the the chunk of land that he has taken that's a big chunk of land as he's gone he has amassed much equipment he's rebuilt his army of elephants and he's used uh, indian elephants which are larger he's ready now he's getting ready it's after Saudi Arabia that his nation refers to him or begins referring to him as the Great. And that, that, I think that qualifies. In, uh, it's in 204 that this king was assassinated and this regent takes over. He's quickly put down and there's a succession of generals that are one more inept than the previous. Meanwhile, this infant is growing. But he's not in charge yet. So in 202, they put that first plan into place. They divvy up Egypt. And in 199, he starts to move south from Syria. He takes Lebanon. And then he takes Phoenicia. Phoenicia, by the way, is is just a little bit northwest of Galilee. You can see it's getting all kind of close in here. We're, 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 We're now between... Gaza and Galilee, this is all the area where Jews are, and the Jews uh, start to see the success. Now they've always hated Egypt, and and so they start to form this alliance, and we're going to get to that alliance. But we first need to see this last fulfillment of, of this vision, the siege works. And he's describing a defeat at a place called Pania, which we call Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is the city where, where Jesus asked Peter, who do men say to that I am? And, Jesus, and Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's where this one great victory will happen. And, and he says, some of your own men, some of your own Jewish men are going to rise up in order to fulfill the vision. They will not prevail. See, the Jews had been seeing this coming, and this was the opportunity for them to get rid of Egypt. They even watered the elephants in Jerusalem. They would bring these 150 elephants into Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem's not a great city at that point in time, it's not huge. So imagine just 150 elephants walking through the, the city. They will try to rebel. Now, General Scopus from Egypt did manage to defeat the Jews. But that was a short-lived victory because at Pania or accessory Caesarea Philippi they have their last hurrah. There was a siege and then he brought in elephants. And he starved them out and then he crushed them. He killed 10,000 at least. He took more than that slaves back to Egypt and Ptolemy IV. Uh, excuse me, Ptolemy 5, will never, in fact, Egypt itself, will never have control of Palestine again. Wow. All of that. That's the history. So if you made it through history, we can now apply it with the few minutes we have left. The Jews made a miscalculation. He says they they will rise up. He says violent men among yourselves will, will rise up in order to make this vision happen what vision? well I assume that it's a vision that Daniel got maybe Daniel 9 the, 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 what they interpreted as this, this supremacy of the Jewish people we're going to rise up and, and, and this Messiah is going to come and, and they were trying to force this to happen the problem was that, that they made a miscalculation first of all actually they made two miscalculations one is that they thought they knew what God's plan was they didn't understand it at all They were misunderstanding it from this point all the way up through when Christ was there. Even as Christ left, his apostles were saying, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? All right, he's going to have to put that one on a hook and the Holy Spirit's going to have to explain it. They, They were not understanding what it was all about. The second thing was, is here, 200 years before Christ, they were trying to make something happen that God had said, listen, here's the time frame. This is when it's going to happen. And we went through Daniel 9, and we looked at the exact year when it was going to happen. Even to the half a year when it was going to happen. And they were trying to make this happen 200 years ahead of when God said it's going to happen. That ain't going to work. They thought they could produce something before God was ready. I want to talk about agendas as we finish here. This is where it attaches to us. We have several problems in forming our agendas. We sometimes, I think, we think like the Jews. They were focused on independence. It was a goal. They had longed for it. When they had it, they didn't appreciate it. And they went back to it. You read the book of Judges and you'll see that again and again and again. Every week we meet and someone will thank God for the ability to meet peacefully. Now that's a blessing from God. We shouldn't take that for granted. It is a great blessing from God. In fact, Paul told Christians to pray for it. He told them to pray that we, we could have peace. Herein is the problem. Liberty, independence is not an ends. It is a means. We think of liberty often as a freedom from. Freedom from slavery. Freedom from this. Freedom from that. But freedom is better interpreted as a freedom to. Freedom to do this. This is how we're raised, if you memorized any part of the Constitution, this is how freedoms are phrased, right? Freedom to assemble. Freedom to petition. Freedom to. Freedom to. It's a freedom to do something with it. And God has given us our freedoms in order to do something with it, not simply to come and sit. The Jews thought that freedom was an end's And so, therefore, anything they could do to get it was important. But there does come a time, and we see this numerous times in the Scriptures, where God says, you're not using what I gave you the way I want you to use what I gave you, so I'm taking it back. And I'll give it to somebody who will use it. Independence is not a goal. If that's my goal, then I have the wrong agenda. The second thing that we think like the Jews in this story you see all of that history just to get to the Jews one small verse one small verse and this is really the main thing that God was getting to in this passage secular methods are not the way to accomplish God's goal that's how we resort we we think we understand what God is doing and then we, we say, I'm going to use a secular method to get there. I'm going to use disalliance. I'm going to uh, attach myself to Antiochus third, and he'll be really thankful and then, and then we'll somehow launch ourselves off of that and then we'll be our own great people and we'll, we'll probably overthrow Antiochus III after that. Secular methods aren't the way to accomplish God's agenda. Looking across any platform, be it social media or your news, I've seen two groups of people, and I'm talking about religious people. I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about within people who are called Christians. I've seen two groups of people. Both have secular motives. Both stand against one another. And both are equally convinced that they're right. They both wrap themselves in a skin of spirituality. They have some spiritual application, perhaps... There's the two groups. There is the forgotten country group, where patriotism is deemed as an extension of Christianity. I'm not saying don't celebrate the Fourth of July, I'm saying that people for thousands of years have hoped that an alignment with a political force was going to accomplish spiritual goals. Ask the Jews how that turned out. Antiochus III's son is Antiochus IV. We've already talked about him. We're going to talk about him a lot more in this chapter. It's going to get more detailed. Didn't turn out so good. Attachment to secular methods to accomplish God's purpose, largely because we don't even know what God's purpose is oftentimes in an event. It's not going to happen. There is the social justice group. Now, again, humanitarian needs are necessary. Necessary. And insofar as we are directly connected to a group, that's wonderful. We do things with family promise. We We do things perhaps on an individual basis. When we're doing those things, we can directly interact with people on a spiritual level. But when we turn to demonstrations and arguments, we become counterproductive. That's what the Jews thought they were going to do. And they failed. Miserably. That is not going to accomplish what God's doing in the world. It was God's kingdom, His spiritual kingdom, that was going to be that rock cut out of a mountain, that was going to fill the earth and subdue it. It wasn't a political force. It wasn't social justice or social causes. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, as we conclude. He says, walk as wise people, redeeming the time because the days are evil. (laughs) The days are always evil. He's not talking about then. (laughs) The days are always evil. Satan doesn't go, yeah, I'm taking a vacation this century. Time goes by, and if we've misused it, we've always thought, man, I wish I had that time back. Right? Don't you wish you could go back in time and do something different, like save the photos on your if only, if only, if only. If only I had that time back. Spiritually God says you can redeem your time. That means you can literally buy your time back. Wouldn't that be cool? You can buy your time back by being wise and understanding God's agenda. Enough time has been wasted promoting things that God is really not interested in. How much effort and time and posting of this and arguing about that has gone on in the church? You might not care about history. You might not care about anything going on in the world right now. You might not care about current events. You might not even have a Facebook account. I don't care. More power to you. Maybe in your own life there is something you want back. A decision you made that you wish you could have back. As we close, God says, you can get it back. You can redeem your time. Right now. You have the opportunity to redeem every amount of your past, no matter what it was. God says you can be washed clean of that and redeem it. Purchase it back.